Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hey Jim, good afternoon, morning all, depending on when you're listening to this, and we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day. So as a Welshman, Jim, um, celebrating that Welshman, St. Patrick, may I wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day? Uh, many happy returns, Chris. It's going to be a pretty quiet one here in Dublin. Um, it's a day I normally love, the celebration, etc. could crack, but it's dead, nothing. Go yes, um, in Wales, in Wales, the, the, uh, the reported homeland of St. Patrick, uh, or birthplace anyway, um, all that's open are hairdressers and golf courses. There isn't much to do, but there is something to do a bit more than usual. Um, but today we're going to talk about Europe and many different aspects um, of that wonderful continent and ask a couple of questions. The first that I'm going to pose to myself, to Jim, um, is do we see the makings of yet another crisis for the Eurozone with respect to its response to the coronavirus crisis? And I'm going to explore that a little bit, um, both in terms of Europe's history, its politics, its economics, and also the politics of the latest row over the AstraZeneca vaccine. Why am I asking the question, is there another crisis brewing? Well, it stems essentially from an observation that having messed up its response with respect to the vaccine, uh, this is perhaps the second great test of its legitimacy that the Eurozone and the Euro area in general, the EU, has um, been posed in the last 10 years or so. And it might turn out it's early days to reach a definitive conclusion, but it might turn out to have been the second great test that it's failed. 
We go back to the first one, which of course was the great financial crisis. And there are lots of ways in which looking backwards now in the rear view mirror, we can say that the Eurozone failed. Certainly if you were sitting as a Greek citizen, you wouldn't uh, argue with that conclusion, I suspect, in the way that Greece was treated. And again, that debate still rages um, both um, across Europe and um, between various protagonists. I think the, the, the Northern Europeans would say, uh, quite, have a different perspective to the Greeks. And indeed, Ireland has its own perspective. Most macroeconomists these days would say that the decade of austerity that flowed from, the, from that crisis was a mis policy mistake and that several other mistakes were made, not just with the Greek and the Irish austerity responses. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the way in which a double dip recession was caused um, by the actions of the European Central Bank uh, about 10 years ago, actually, when it very prematurely raised interest rates once the crisis, the financial crisis, had deemed to be over. So in many ways, I think it, you could argue that the, um, the EU failed its citizens um, in one of its great tests, the great financial crisis. But it's emerged from that. And um, the only casualty, if you like, in recent years, of course, has been Brexit. Um, at times, it's been a close run thing for, for the Italians um, and, of course, earlier for the Greeks. But the experience of Brexit probably has led many people to conclude, at least up until this time last year, that the EU was stronger than ever. But then it was be another great test has been posed with, with the virus and the, um, the way in which various countries handled or mishandled it. It's not just the UK that has horrendous death rates, although they are the highest on the raw numbers. We won't go through those, but they are appalling. Um, but what I'm thinking of, Jim, is, is, is the way in which a state is, is asked to protect its people and the complete mishandling of the um, vaccine program from its original design to the purchasing, to the contracts, to, to all of that stuff. Von der Leyen uh, threatening to invoke Article 16, causing mayhem in the North, which still is rumbling on, um, all the way through to the fact that Europe is, is, is severely lagging and in fact still messing up the vaccination program. And if it's seen to have failed that test, that is twice a big one. And protecting the safety of its citizens, not just their economic health, but also their actual health. I wonder whether that could lead to political ramifications. What do you think? Um, well, if you look at what's happening around the place at the moment, Chris, um, the story out of Israel at the moment and its vaccination program um, would make one very, very green with envy. Um, you look at what Biden is doing in the United States. Um, he has pledged that every U.S. adult would be eligible for vaccination by May 1st and that there would be a return to normality on Independence Day, which is the 4th of July. I love the symbolism there. Um, and you look at what's happening in the European Union. Um, the EU is struggling to meet its target of 70 percent of adults um, vaccinated by September. So to date, um, European Union is undoubtedly failing the test. And um, certainly I, I would agree with you that if this test is failed, that the political ramifications of that could be incredibly serious in a sense that it will just ra give rise to the growth in extremes politics and even the regional elections in Germany last weekend, Merkel's CDU party um, 
basically destroyed in those elections. And um, a, a, lo a lot of that is being attributed to disillusionment with the way Germany has handled the vaccination program. And the every national government in the EU made the decision that the vaccine procurement and so on would be handled by the European Union rather than by individual countries. And um, the Germans cannot be happy with the way that has worked because, as you know, the Germans would always pride themselves on efficiency and the ability to do things. And there is a sort of a view now that um, by handing it over to the EU, uh, that the thing has been messed up. And the politician who made that decision um, was punished last weekend. So the question, of course, is if you'll see much more of this political dislocation as a result of vaccine failure, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, and I think that there are specific aspects of the political outlook for both France, Germany and indeed Ireland that um, we should return to in a minute. But I think we need to put this in some kind of context and say a couple of things. First, to remind ourselves, um, you and I, Jim, go back a long way. And certainly speaking for myself, I won't put words in your mouth. Uh, prior to the whole Brexit debacle, um, which I was vehemently opposed to, I would be still classed as a Remainer, or these days described as a Ramona, um, and would have voted to remain had I been in the UK at the time. Um, coming into that, uh, I wrote a lot of stuff, gave a lot of talks in which I would have been described, I think quite accurately, as a very pro-EU person, a Europhile, an enthusiast. But in the years before that, I think it would also have been fair to describe me anyway as mildly Eurosceptic, not from a philosophical or political point of view, because I know enough European history uh, to know why the EU looks the way it does today, and that the, the raison d'etre of Europe to avoid Europe um, going to war with itself um, has succeeded. Europe was conceived in the ashes of the Second World War. We don't need a history lesson, but it's always important to, to remember this because a lot of people don't, and a lot of people who should know don't know. I remember reading a little while ago um, an article in the Irish Times, actually, by an Ivy League professor of history who said, um, who took issue with the idea that Europe was founded to avoid war, um, which is, which is not, it's not even wrong that a history professor could get that so wrong is, 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 is ridiculous. You only have to go back to the late 1940s, early 1950s, all of the documents, all of the speeches, all of the founding, founding articles of the original six countries, you can see exactly what they were up to. Um, it was to avoid that simple point that if you go back to when Columbus first stumbled on the Americas, Germany and France, up until the Second World War, had had, by my estimation, 17 wars. Um, and that the guys and women, women and men at the end of the Second World War simply said they're, they're not going to do this again. So these, these highfalutin principles are to be applauded. Um, and I think nobody could disagree with that. Um, so it's always it's always worth bearing in mind what you're talking about when you describe oneself as um, you're a skeptic or indeed one is criticizing Brussels, particularly in these incredibly politicized times. Um, we need to be careful about how we end up getting labeled. I am an enthusiast for the European project, but have been historically critical of the way that project has been handled 
And you and I will remember the great currency crises of the early 90s, which is an example of how that Europe has badly handled this. And the second dimension to the way in which Europe is failing today is, is firstly the vaccine, but the second one, of course, is the economic response to this. You mentioned Joe Biden. We've talked about him on this podcast before. And the contrast between the two in terms of economic policies, not just vaccination policies, couldn't be starker. Would you agree? I, I would totally agree. And um, I would definitely, and when we worked together many years ago, um, we definitely would have bordered on the Eurosceptic. And um, I suppose in many ways, I would still describe myself as a bit of a Eurosceptic but I also fully recognize the historical aspect of the formation of the European Union. Um, I remember the late, great Brendan Halligan, who died last year, um, gave me a copy of Monet's, one of the founding fathers of the European Union, his biography. And it is really, really clear the vision that drove those people to try and create um, the European Union and the Treaty of Rome in 1958. So that, that political aspect is really important and should never, ever um, be forgotten by anybody. And unfortunately, the generation who remembers the Second World War um, is dying out very, very steadily. Um, but that, that doesn't take from the fact that we have to be able to analyse and criticise what the European Union is all about. And when you try and do that, um, it, it just it's a little bit like religious fundamentalism. And indeed, the same sort of attitude applies to the whole COVID debate in this country at the moment between the zero COVIDs and the others and, you know, all the different flavors of opinion. So it's, it's a dangerous topic to discuss because you are deemed Eurosceptic and you're written off by many people as a result of that. But I think it is really important to recognize uh, the flaws in the basic EU structure. I mean, you have 27 different countries now around the table. And I'm told by people who sit at those tables where decisions are made that it's very difficult to receive, to obtain unanimity on anything. The, the 27 around the table are all thinking national rather than EU. And the result of that, I think we saw borne out in the vaccine debacle in the ability, sorry, the the the, the the efforts that have been made to put some sort of fiscal package through the European Union at the moment, all of these negotiations are long drawn out, protracted, and what you eventually end up with is a compromise that really achieves very little. So that is a fundamental problem I believe the EU needs to face up to, or otherwise the sorts of problems that we've seen over the years you know, will just keep recurring, and eventually one of those could be just big enough to create a serious problem. And I think that with the benefit of hindsight and history will write up the period 2012, 2013, in the midst of the Greek crisis, the whole structure of the thing was seriously, seriously fragile at that stage. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I mentioned earlier on the uh, great currency crisis of the early 90s, which most of our listeners will be far too young to remember. Um, but that's an example of what we're talking about here. And you, you in particular mentioned religious fundamentalism. So I was reminded of an anecdote from back then. I used to attend back then something called the G7 Council, which is a private sector body um, essentially mirroring uh, the G7 
group of finance ministers that, that meet to the present day to try and offer unsolicited advice and, and commentary. And uh, an assistant secretary from the United States Treasury at one of those meetings that I was fortunate enough to be attending all those years ago was asked about the, the, the currency debacle that was going on in Europe at the time. And this was to do with something called the exchange rate mechanism. Sterling was involved. The lira was involved. The Irish pound we used to have one was involved. And his answer to the question about all of these currency shenanigans was absolutely fascinating and has a lot of resonance today, particularly with respect to the remark that you made about fundamentalism. And this assistant secretary from the US Treasury said, I make it a policy never to comment on religious matters. Because he's, he's very well, he saw the the way in which Europe was approaching currencies. And if you remember the the way in which many people in Ireland um, adopted the green flag approach to the currency. It was seen as a matter of national pride or almost of religious fundamentalism to defend the exchange rate. You and I saw it as merely a technocratic issue that was the exchange rate at the right level or not. And Europe has a habit of doing these things. So our perspective, I think, or certainly mine anyway, is I'm a fan of Europe for many, many years, but completely frustrated um, in many ways by its economic policies, its failure to do the best economically for its people, and then doubly frustrated by when it gets puzzled by the political fallout from seriously bad economic decisions. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm minded, as you say this, by uh, back in 1995, um, Bernard Connolly who was the head of the European Commission unit with responsibility for the exchange rate mechanism. He wrote a book in 95 called The Rotten Heart of Europe, where it, it was a very, very uh, controversial, strong publication at the time. Um, he lost his job because of it. He lost his job because of it. But he was basically talking about, well, he, talk, he spoke about a lot of things, but you know, he, he spoke about the double talk surrounding the efforts of politicians, bankers and bureaucrats to force Europe into a crippling monetary straitjacket. Um, and in 19, and, and he was talking about, you know, the moves towards a single European currency. And in 1996, as chief economist at Bank of Ireland, we were running lots of client seminars um, on EMU and the run up to EMU. So I invited Bernard to Dublin to speak at a client seminar. Um, and I also set about arranging some media perform appearances for Bernard because I really thought what he had to say was fascinating. Agree or disagree, it was fascinating and it was very controversial at the time. And um, I got my wrist slapped badly for exposing him to the media and to sort of send out the message that the bank brought a guy like Bernard Connolly to Dublin to speak to his clients. So you were the first victim of cancel culture, Jim. Uh, I, I certainly was. There's, there's no doubt about that. And it was it was it was a funny experience. But um, looking back on it in hindsight, I mean, Bernard Connolly certainly had a very deep influence over my thought process at the time. And you know, I would have argued that Ireland's participation in the single European currency was going to be problematical. And in fact, I would have always believed um, from my understanding of economics that the creation of European Monetary Union, excuse me, and imposing a single currency and a single interest rate 
on so many different economies was always doomed to create problems and particularly for one like Ireland because it, it, it brings me back to um, the Canadian economist Robert Mundell who was the sort of the founding father of the concept of an optimum currency area and others uh, joined in that whole academic process but Mundell was the one that really drove it and he was talking about the circumstances that must prevail for a single currency to fit nicely into a, a range of different economies. So it came up with this concept of an optimal currency area. So it included things like the ability to deal with an asymmetric shock, which is a shock that is unique to one region. Um, he spoke about the need for labor market mobility, strong trading relationships between the different countries, um, homogenous preferences. In other words, um, the member countries would have similar attitudes towards stuff like inflation and economic management, for example, and then similar legal and financial systems. These are just uh, a small number of the sort of conditions um, that Mundell believed were necessary for an optimum currency area. But of course, Europe um, and certainly certain countries within Europe did not fit into that at all. You consider, for example, um, the difference in opinion between the Northern Europeans, you know, the Dutch, the German, the Austrian view of the world, and the Southern Europeans, which at the time were disparagingly described as the garlic belt. Uh, but, you know, the Italians, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Greeks, and so on, had a very different attitude to economic management. Um, and then, of course, in the middle of that, you had Ireland, with a historically very strong relationship economically, politically, socially with the United Kingdom. So here we were joining a single currency. Our economy was totally out of sync with the other member countries. Um, the European Central Bank set an interest rate that was um, aimed at the bigger economies, totally inappropriate for Ireland. And in my view, it definitely contributed to the eventual implosion of the Irish economy in 2007-2008. Um, I could go on, I won't, but that whole debate at the time was very definitely um, characterised by religious fundamentalism. Yeah, and I think that that has lots of resonance today because, it, as, as we've said, several aspects of that still have consequences for today. Um, but Europe has survived that and um, uh, lots of um, Anglo-Saxon economists, that label that's chucked around by Europeans at, at its critics, because the critics tend to come from places like the UK, but also the United States. And the demise of Europe and the demise of the euro has been forecast many, many times um, by all sorts of economists, not least the ones, like you said, that um, pointed out Europe was far from being an optimal currency area and would cause problems. They were right, as you said, that it did cause an awful lot of problems. Ireland's boom and bust was caused in no small part by the euro. Um, uh, but nevertheless, we survived. The two things I'd say about that is that, you know, there's survival and survival. A lot of people were very badly hurt during that period. A lot of people um, lost their jobs, um, all the negative equity in the housing market. A lot of people were forced to emigrate from countries like Ireland and Greece and to this day um, are living very different lives because of that crisis. And, and we need to bear that in mind, that some of these costs last a long time and, and they are not buried. 
But what, what does that tell us going forward? Does the fact that Europe always seemed to muddle through these sorts of crises mean that it will muddle through the pressures that it's now facing? I don't know. I'd be interested in what you think. But um, I wonder, just will there ever come a pressure point where something seriously breaks within the European project? I hope not. But my frustration is that it's fairly obvious where the pressures are going to come from this time. There's not a lot they can do about the vaccination thing, having made the mistakes that they've made. But they have repeatedly shot themselves in the foot, in my view, with respect to things that they've done and said since they messed up the original procurement problem. And this row over the AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clots is another example of what I said right at the very beginning, is the way in which everything gets politicised these days. And um, let's not get into that in any great detail, but just to point out that if you if you look at the English speaking press today, um, it's just one big eye roll. You know, how on earth could you possibly suspend um, a vaccine that you know will save lives? And if you don't give it, it will definitely cost lives um, for those people that either don't get vaccinated at all or even just delayed because the clear risk is that you will you will get covid and be ill and or die, unfortunately, with this theoretical possibility of blood clots. The, the way in which people talk about the precautionary principle, I know that phrase has been used by Ireland's medical officers, you don't, you don't operate the precautionary principle in a pandemic. There are so many different aspects to this that one could talk about, but let's talk about the economic rather than the health. And we may well return to the pandemic um, and get into the entrails of that in a different podcast. But the economic dimension to this, as on top of the vaccine and related to the vaccine, is, is the economic response. One of the reasons why I think Europe has been able to muddle through its various crises over the last number of decades is that the alternative, the thing against which Europe is compared to, hasn't looked an awful lot better. It has looked a bit better, but for, for example, comparing Europe to the United States, Standards of living are higher in the United States typically, but when you look at growth rates and um, lots of other things, Europe doesn't do too badly. It doesn't do great, but it doesn't do too badly. Um, the big difference, of course, has always been the labor market, and Europe has dismissed the disparity between the US going at full employment, and even when Europe was doing relatively well economically, Europe's unemployment was always higher. And it was very much always express, well, that's because um, Europe has a welfare system and the United States doesn't. And we're, that makes us better than them, actually. And that is the flavor of that debate. But we've now got a very big economic experiment, massive, huge, totally underreported in Europe going on in the United States. This is a new new deal. We've talked about it where Biden is going for it big time and Europe isn't. And if Europe and if Biden's experiment works and produces the kind of growth rates that people are talking about, the kind of jobs and the kind of leveling up the things that he's planning to do for poverty and for inequality, it's going to be a very, very big counterfactual, a very big other example of where Europe could have gone if it had so chosen. And I was fascinated to read um, the, the chief economist of the uh, ECB is an Irishman. You know him, Jim, Philip Lane, yes, very, very, very top economist, yeah. desperately trying in an interview with the FT in recent days to say that the, the fiscal response, the policy response between Europe and the United States, the gap isn't that large. And even on the numbers that he quoted, 
it's looking pretty big to me. Now, obviously, it depends on how things go from here. But my worry is that the, the rumblings from the mishandling of the health crisis will combine with the mishandling of the economic response. I would ask you, Jim, where's the 750 billion euros at the moment that they promised every, you know, EU citizens? Is, is, it, is it here yet? But if the United States roars away and is seen as a fantastic success of this huge, huge, big deal that Biden is doing and Europe isn't, I think that could cause political problems. And I'll finish this part of it by saying that my concern is that in the politics of all of that added up will hand France to Marine Le Pen. It will hand Germany to somebody quite weird to succeed Angela Merkel. And in Ireland, um, the government there is handing the next election to Sinn Féin. What do you think of that as a, th as a thesis? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to disagree with you. You mentioned Philip Lane um, and you mentioned earlier the monetary policy mistakes that the European Central Bank made back in 2011 when it started to tighten monetary policy or increase interest rates at the first signs of economic growth, which was very premature and, and definitely contributed to the double dip recession that the Eurozone uh, suffered at that stage. Um, I'd be pretty optimistic, I have to say, that the monetary policy mistake will not be made this time. And one of the reasons for that is because of that Irishman, Philip Lane. Um, I think Philip has a very clear understanding of what the European Central Bank needs to do to make sure that the Eurozone economy recovers and growth remains on track. Where you'd have to be extremely concerned is at a political level, um, the ability of the European Union to deliver sort of stimulus. I mean, that 750 billion euro package is still not um, sparse. So you don't, you don't know where it is either? No, no, no. It's, 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 it's in Brussels. It's, it's in oh, great. Brussels, okay? Lockdown. But even, but even if you look at the breakdown of that 750 billion, um, it's not quite 50-50, but a large chunk of it is grants and a large chunk is going to be in the form of loans. Uh, nothing like the sort of inventiveness that Biden is showing at the moment. And when you talk about the United States and Europe, um, it brings me back to a term that Mary Harney coined, as far as I remember, many years ago when she spoke about this Boston versus Berlin. And the religious fundamentalists in Europe um, would always argue, with justification, some justification that the one thing Europe had over the United States was a strong social model and um, that the US had much higher levels of inequality, which it has had. But I think the interesting thing now is that Biden's new New Deal approach is actually going to try and address that issue in a meaningful way. And if it works, it is really, I think, going to propel the United States socially and economically to a much better place. Whereas Europe, um, is not doing what it should be doing. You wouldn't be confident it's going to do it. So Europe looks like slipping further behind the United States and China in the global power race, if you want to put it that way. So, you know, fundamentally, Europe does have a major, major challenge. It is at a bit of a tipping point at the moment. Um, I hope the political system can get its act together and deliver what needs to be delivered. So I think that the, the conclusion I would draw from this 
is that um, really we're just hoping that the European model of recent decades prevails, which is that when it is confronted by these stresses and strains, somehow by the skin of its teeth, it muddles through, which has always been the right bet to take. Um, and it, it seems to be the only one that we're putting forward here, that we're not putting forward or we're not examining some great new vision for Europe that is being put forward by its politicians, being put forward in a way that a new vision for the United States is being put forward by Biden. That's pretty poor stuff, isn't it, Jim? But it does seem to be the way of the European world. And that's why I'm worried that the combination of the um, mishandled health crisis and particular, in particular the vaccination program, the mishandling of the economic policy response, and as you say, this is mostly about fiscal, not monetary policy, the ECB for once has stepped up to the plate, could lead to um, European citizens just saying, look what Joe Biden has done for his country, for his people, and um, look what our politicians have done for us. And as I say, the dynamic there is, is who then takes advantage of that. And I think, sadly, it's likely to be the populists in places like France, Italy, um, and Ireland. Um, and we can already see this happening on Europe's eastern fringes in places like Poland, and Hungary, where the economics eventually becomes the political. Um, and, and this is why um, I think that we need to watch this very, very carefully. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you because I think from what you're saying, the one thing I would lean is that you believe, well, I certainly believe it, that there is a fundamental lack of proper political leadership at a European level at this stage. One of the last times I had the pleasure of getting off this island was November 2019 when I was at over visiting the European Commission in Brussels and we got a great presentation on the uh, the the policy proposals for the new parliament and you couldn't argue with any of it okay and Ursula von der Leyen was the person as head of the European Commission that was going to be leading this and um, what happened you know, I think in many ways she has been pretty mediocre um, in her first year and a bit in office. And, you know, I, I, I thought her handling of the Irish EU commissioner issue last summer, Phil Hogan, was bad, um, but minuscule compared to her handling of the vaccine crisis to date. So that's the problem. It's lack of political vision. It's lack of political leadership. And when you create that sort of vacuum, you open the doors for all sorts of what I would certainly regard as undesirable political developments and extremism. So it's 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 high risk stuff at this stage. But unfortunately, I don't see any strong European leaders standing up actually and taking charge of this. OK, Jim, I think that's enough or all we have time for today. I expect that this is something that we will return to time and time again. I know we have done over many years and um, I know we will do again on this podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. Have a great Patrick's Day in Wales. And you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to have you on board again very soon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.